0: Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Saddam. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. So church, today's sermon will be called Cosmic Rebellion Part B. And I'd ask the church to stand and please turn to Psalm Chapter 2. as We first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm Chapter 2. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of power so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm number 2, verses 1 to 3. The NASB says... Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Please be seated. So church, last time in Cosmic Rebellion Part A, we defined what Cosmic Rebellion is. It's the resolve of the world to rebel against the Lord. And we answered one central question. Why are people hostile to the idea of God, and we provided two distinct answers. Today's sermon, Cosmic Rebellion Part B, is gonna answer the same question, why are people hostile to the idea of God, and provide one distinct answer. So let's dive right in. The text says, the kings of the earth take their stand. Now, take their stand is a military term used to denote preparation for battle. Ultimately, then, the cosmic rebellion, the insurrection being mounted against God because it's preparation for war, is inevitably going to end in violence. Those who take their stand against God can execute physical violence. Like ISIS in the Middle East, killing Christians because of their faith in God. It can be psychological violence. Where well, we live in an arena of in the West right now, where if you say, I believe in Jesus, you're labeled as stupid. It's psychological warfare. There could also be political violence where now if a person has the audacity to treat to preach the truth of what the Bible actually says or to say that Christ is the exclusive mediator between God and humankind now that's labeled hate speech. And if we look in the case of Jesus for example, he was the victim of religious violence, of church violence and state sanctioned violence. Jesus, before he was crucified, he went through six trials. The first three trials was, trials was brought to him against the Jewish people, first by Annas, next by Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin. In his Jewish trials, they brought against false charges. They said, you are blaspheming, calling yourself the son of God. In each of his three Jewish trials, he was found guilty, and they brought him to the Romans. He went through three secular trials, one with Pontius Pilate, then to Herod, and now back to Pontius Pilate. In each of his secular trials, he was found not guilty. But in spite of being, fo- being found not guilty, he was subjected to state-sanctioned violence, being put on the cross and crucified. So when the kings of the earth take their stand, no matter if it's back then or speaking about present day, it ends in violence, whether it's physical, psychological, political, legal, or emotional. The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together. This is ironic. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and stands not in the way of sinners. Now we have kings taking their stand and rulers taking counsel together against God. Counsel comes from a Hebrew root that means to get together, to conspire, or to scheme. This tells us when rulers take counsel together, they have a certain mental sharpness about them. They have their wits about them, and their counsel is not only diabolical, but it's also very strategic in its execution. In Exodus number 1, Pharaoh was providing over the nation of Egypt, and he saw all of the Hebrews who were multiplying. They were being fruitful and multiplying. And he took counsel and told his people, Come, let us deal wisely with them. And what was the result of his counsel? He basically said, if if these Hebrews keep on growing and an enemy, someone who hates us, tries to invade Egypt, they're going to align with them and take us over. This can't happen. So in his counsel, he said, let's deal harshly with the Hebrews, but that didn't work. So what was the next step of his diabolical counsel? He told Hebrew midwives to murder, newborn hebrew babies that is what happens when rulers take counsel together and the point is that the council of rulers is sinful immoral and always stands to destroy life the kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed This is the focal point, this is the crux of the cosmic rebellion. Now we all know who the Lord is. The Lord is the one who said in the beginning, let there be light and the world came into existence. The Lord is the one when Moses asked him, what's your name? Who shall I say sent to me? And he said, I am that I am. The rebellion is against the Lord and his anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. And if you're thinking to yourself, that sounds familiar, you're right. Because our English word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? Jesus Christ. Christ actually comes from the Greek word Christos. Christos is a Greek translation of Mashiach. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're actually saying Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. In Acts 1038, it says Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And in John 1, Andrew, the brother of Peter, he said, hey, Peter, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus. So we know who the anointed one is. What does being anointed mean? Being anointed means to cover with oil symbolically, which means to invest someone with divine power and approval or to in, or to consecrate something for a holy purpose. Being anointed means to invest someone with power or to consecrate something for a holy purpose. For example, in the Old Testament, no king ever self-anointed themselves. David did not stand up one day and say, hey, everybody, I'm going to be king. It doesn't work like that. There was no vote. There was no electoral college. God told the prophet Samuel, go to the son of Jesse and anoint david it was a means of validation someone got their authority from someone else when you buy something online and there are a bunch of reviews and everyone says hey this product is great that psychologically speaking compels you to buy it why because the validation for that thing comes from someone else so When the prophet is sent by God to anoint someone, that king to be now has divine approval. Now let's compare this to present day. I'm not going to be political. I'm just going to serve an example. Our president, Donald Trump, there were some people who voted for him. They say, yay, our guy won. There were some people who did not vote for him they'll say boo, our candidate did not win. So the people who are in the boo camp, the only ones they can be mad at are people who voted for our president because his presidency, his symbolic kinship is a function of the people, a popular vote. The only one they can be mad at in the democratic process is other voters. Now. If you have someone who is anointed based on divine approval and God tells a prophet, this person is going to be king. If you don't like the one who is anointed, the only person you can be mad at now is God. Because it wasn't a popular vote. It wasn't a popular consensus. It is a divine and if you ever want to take a stance against God and what he sovereignly declares, that is never a good path to take. Because when a sovereign God, who has absolute control over every atom in the universe, when he says, this is my anointed, and you don't like that choice, I suggest you very quickly change your mind. Because when a sovereign God makes a sovereign choice to anoint Christ the King, you cannot disrespect his sovereignty. Because to rebel against the Lord's anointed, to rebel against the one who is anointed, is to rebel against the anointer, God himself. And as it says in John 5.32, He who does not honor the Son, Christ the King, doesn't honor the Father. We serve a Trinitarian God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose. You can never get to the Father except through the exclusive path of the Son. You cannot ascend to faith in Jesus Christ unless you've been regenerated, born again, by the Holy Spirit. You can never have access to the fruits of the Spirit unless you have faith in Christ. It's a package deal. And if you don't honor the Son, then you don't honor the Father who sent him. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's what's interesting. The rebels in this cosmic rebellion, nations, peoples, kings, rulers. They're not revolting for the purpose of anarchy. Because if they had a problem with the fact of having a king the first king they would revolt against is the king they already have. If they had a problem with political authority in general, their first course of action would be to get rid of the rulers that they have. So the rebels in the cosmic rebellion don't want to take Christ the king off the throne to be king-less. They just want to get rid of Christ the king. Let me make this plain. There's a TV show on right now, very popular, called Game of Thrones. Every week, there literally is a Game of Thrones. You have one king which says, I sit on the Iron Throne, I am king. The next week, the episode, someone else says, no. I want to be king, and they mount a revolt, they mount a battle, that person wins, the old king is gone, now you have a new king. Every single week... There's someone new saying, I want to be king. But no one in this fantasy realm ever says, wait a minute. People are dying. We're fighting all these battles for a new king. Do we not see the problem here? Do we not see peasants are losing their lives for the sake of a king? Maybe we should do away with this whole king idea because it's killing us. No one ever says that. Do you know why? Because even the pagan writers, producers, and directors of this show realize that human beings have to serve something they have to bow down before something so the problem in the human heart because it has an eternal hole inside it longs to worship it longs to bend the knee before someone or some thing the problem in the fantasy realm of Game of Thrones is not they have the problem with a, with kingship in general They just don't like the idea of having someone like Christ, the king, on the throne. Because the eternal hole in the human heart longs to worship something. It just can't stand when Christ is sovereign over it. Now, why is this so? Why is it the the rebels are fighting specifically against Christ, the king? They tell us in their battle cry. Their battle cry says, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What does this mean? Fetters and cords refer to the yoke that was put on the neck of an animal. In agriculture, a fetter was the harness put on the neck of the animal to steer it and guide it when it was uh, plowing the field. And the cords were the bands or the chains that went from the fetter to the farmer or person holding the chains in his hand. So the reason why nations, kings, and rulers are revolting against God and his anointed is because they view him as being too restrictive. They think he's burdensome. They think he's trying to enslave them, and they can't stand it. They want to cast, they want to tear their fetters apart and break the cords that connect themselves to God. In other words, the rebels are saying this. They say, we want a world without God without his morality, without his rules, without his restrictions, and without his limitations. We want to live by one rule and one rule only. Do as thou wilt. And the desire for autonomy is pictured as tearing off one's chains and freeing oneself from restraint. So I ask you at the top, Why are people hostile to the idea of God? And the answer is, people aren't hostile to the idea of God in general. They're hostile to the idea of the God of the Bible. And the reason why is because they think he's too limiting. He's a threat to their individual autonomy. So the true reason, the core of the matter as to why this cosmic rebellion is happening, the reason for the raging, the reason for the devising vanity, and the reason for the insurrection is that the rebels have an opposition to the restraints of godliness. They don't like the thou shall and the thou shall nots. And they, with one voice, say, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But here's what's intriguing. Because the rebels, they actually have a point to a degree. What do I mean by that? Because when you bend the knee before Christ, there are going to be limits. There are going to be restrictions. There are going to be things that you do do and you do not do. But the rebels view his, Christ the King's limits as limitations. They view Christ's restrictions as something that's inhibitive. But the question the rebel should be asking is, What are the restrictions for? What are the limitations for? Let's make this plain. If patient John Doe comes into my office and says, Dr. Sadafal, I've been eating a lot, I've been peeing a lot, and I'm losing weight. One of the first things I'm going to do is check Mr. Doe's blood sugar. And I'm going to use a glucometer. It's a small little device. It's an objective scale, which is independent of how he thinks or feels. It's independent of how I think or feel. And it's going to tell both of us what his blood sugar is. So I stick a little needle in his finger, it bleeds, I put on a test strip, within 30 seconds I have his blood glucose level, his blood sugar level. His blood sugar measures 500, which is five times higher than normal. So I'm gonna say, Mr. John Doe, based on this objective scale, you are sick. You are diabetic, but as you're treating physician, I want you to be well. I want you to have life. So I'm going to start imposing restrictions on him. I'm going to say things like, thou shall keep a food diary. Thou shall eat leafy green vegetables. Thou shall not ever walk into Dunkin' Donuts. Thou shall not thou shalt not drink soda. He may say, Dr. Sadaful, you are an oppressive tyrant. And I'm gonna say, Mr. Doe, I want you to live. I want you to be well. I want you to dance at your granddaughter's wedding. And in order for you to be healthy, There are certain restrictions that you have to follow. I can say you can ignore all of my advice, but the end is going to be bad for you. What kind of doctor would I be if I allowed him to do what he wanted? Say it another way. In our living room at home, my wife and I have a lock on our front door. It's high up, so no child can reach it. When my son was two and getting more adventurous, he wanted to do everything. So one day he tried to open that door, and he almost made it outside. He was exploring his options. Now, my wife and I love our son. We want him to have... Life, we want him to be well, and a three year old walking the streets of Queens by himself is never a good idea. So, because we love him and want him to have life, we have said, Thou shalt play with Thomas the Train in the living room, thou shalt play with Plato in the living room, but thou shalt not walk out the front door and we put a lock we put a restriction we put a barrier because we want our son to have life that is the point point. and what kind of parents would we be if we allowed our son to do as he wanted So God, as our loving Father, who wants us to have life, he benefits nothing if we perish. He gives us thou shalt, he gives us thou shalt not, because his intent is for us to have eternal life. And what kind of God would he be? If he allowed us to do what we wanted so we could merely do one thing, die. God's restrictions define the contours of life. So as long as you live within those boundaries, you will be well. You will live. And the wicked interpret God's law as a means of subjugation. But the righteous interpret God's law as a means of liberation. God even uses the same language the wicked use to describe revolt to describe his protection of us. In Psalm 107.14 it says, He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. In Psalm 129.4 it says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut in two the cords of of the wicked. And here's my favorite, one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. Hosea 11:4. I led them with cords of man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. What God is telling us is that restrictions in the present are preparing us for eternal life Joel Osteen has a book that says your best life now which is a fraudulent title because your best life is never now the Bible tells you our best life is always and always will be in eternity in heaven and the purpose of these restrictions is to prepare us for that and this is how Christianity is different from every religion on the face of the planet. Every other religion, no matter whether it's Islam or Buddhism, whatever, It's based on works, it's based on how well can you keep a scorecard throughout life? How well can you keep check marks and how well can you avoid getting X's on your God report card? And at the end of your life, you have no certainty, you have no security. That God, whoever it may be, may reject you because your merit isn't good enough. But when it comes to Christ the King, From the very beginning of your relationship with him, he brings you in close with bonds of love. And he tells you, I already died for your sins. I already knew what you were going to do before it even happened. And all your sin, all your guilt, all of your transgressions are washed away at the beginning of the relationship. And you are accepted, you find solace and comfort in Him from the very start. And now because you know God loves you and cherishes you and brings you in close with bonds of love, you are now in a relationship with the God who accepts you. And now how do you respond? You're now free to serve the one that you love. And all the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, you delight to do them. Because you are honoring and adoring the one who died for you. The one who gave everything up of himself for your sakes. And you respond to Christ the King. Because you are now free to live for him. Those aren't restrictions at all. Those are bonds of love. And when you have God himself wrapping his loving arms around you, why would you ever want to let him go? That's not a restriction. That's eternal life. That's care, that's love. That is a God who is omnipotent and sovereign, bending down and extending his hand to feed you. Amen. That's not subjugation. That's liberation. Amen. Which is why when Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirty, 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because when Christ himself holds you in his arms, everything's going to be all right. Now, I won't leave this point alone without going to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verse 3, the King James Version says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death. Do you know what this verse says? This says that the gate, the path to destruction, is big, it's wide and it's very inclusive. And the rebels who are saying, "Let's get rid of our restraints, let's get rid of our bands." In essence, there are no bands in their death. These rebels don't have a glucose measuring machine and a doctor to tell them they're sick. They don't have a lock on the front door to tell them if you stay within mommy and daddy's living room, you're going to be okay. They don't have the law of God that tells them a sinner needs a savior. In other words, the rebels want to be free, but they are therefore free to die. So I asked before, what are God's restrictions? What are Christ's limitations for? And the answer is life. That's always his goal, for you to have life. So where do we go from here? We're going to go where the Bible went. Because Acts 4 interpret Psalm number 2 to make sense of a situation in the New Testament so as you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 verse 23 I'm going to set this picture up so you understand where we are so we're in Acts 4 so Jesus Christ already died he already resurrected and Pentecost happened the Holy Spirit came down So one day, Peter and John, who were both apostles, meaning they were specially commissioned to go out into the world, they saw Jesus in his resurrected body. They're going to the temple in Jerusalem. They're going to pray. It's about 3 o'clock. And they see a layman who's there every day. And Peter says to the layman, I don't have silver and gold for you but i have something better and he said in the name of jesus christ get up and walk and the man immediately gets up and he begins praising god now the people in the temple they've been going to the temple you know each and every day so they see this guy walking and they're wondering what's going on and a crowd gathers and then peter preaches a sermon he says remember that guy jesus who you guys crucified He's God. He's the Messiah. Confess of your sins, repent, and in him you will find salvation. On that day, 5,000 people got saved. But the temple guard composed of Sadducees and uh, people who guarded the temple. They heard all this commotion, but they didn't like all this Jesus resurrection talk. So they threw Peter and John in jail for a night. For what charge? Good question. So they were thrown in jail overnight. On the next day, they, they, uh, the rulers formed a council to kind of say, what should we do with these two? And Peter boldly gets up and basically says, whether it's right for me and John to obey God or to listen to you, I'm going to let you decide. But what we're going to do, we're going to keep on preaching, we're going to keep on teaching what we have seen, and what we have heard. We're going to keep on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the rulers couldn't keep them because they had no formal charges. So then Peter and John are let go. And now we're in verse 23. So Peter and John are going to flee back to the church, to their people. So Acts 4, verse 23 says, When they, Peter and John, had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Stop. So now all of that happened. Now they're going to quote Psalm 2 to interpret their reality. Let's dive back in. So they said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Stop again. Now, they're going to interpret their reality further using Psalm number 2 as a guide. So, the text now says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So Psalm number 2 takes us to Acts number 4, and Acts number 4 is going to locate us in 2017. Because what happened to Peter and John? They had the audacity to preach the truth of God's word. And what was the result? They were victims of violence. They were victims of church violence. They were victims of legal violence. And that paradigm is still happening all across the world. Well, If you have the audacity, if you have the nerve to tell the truth of what the Bible actually says you're going to be persecuted. So the cosmic rebellion described in Psalms number two tells us two things. When there's resistance, when there's opposition, that is a just fulfillment of what was written thousands of years ago. And when the heathen rage, they're assailing God in heaven. And when the heathen rage and assail God himself, He's not impressed. Because as we'll get into next week, when the heathen rage against God, when he's sitting on his throne in heaven, he doesn't even have to get up. So I'm going to close because I want to send a message to every man called to preach the truth of God's Word, to men and women who tirelessly work to witness, to evangelize, anyone who is called to preach the truth of God's Word in an environment that is hostile to it. Psalm 2 leads us to Acts 4, which tells us that opposition, resistance, and defiance is supposed to happen. Hostility is therefore not a cause for despair, but the proper setting for preaching in a world that despises the Lord and his anointed. You don't do what you do to cause hostility. You don't do what you do to incite violence, but you do what you do in spite of the hostility. Because you're, they, the hostility is engaging what you're doing. You are doing this for the honor and glory of God, for his elect, and for all those who have not yet heard the word. You are doing this to labor, to build God's kingdom in heaven. And that's what the heathen are going to do. They're going to rage. So the hostility is the exact setting the Bible tells us is what's going to happen. And if you ever needed proof, just ask yourself, what did they do to the Son of God? They killed him. And when Peter and John hunkered down together in the community of faith, they went from their persecution back to the church. And they dug their roots in deep to other like-minded people. And the Holy Spirit gifted this unified, this ecumenical, this harmonious body of people to speak with boldness. If there, any, if there was anything that characterized the first century church, the church that existed in the first generation after Jesus ascended, it was boldness. Not brashness, not elitism, not dismissiveness, not arrogance, but boldness, a fearless confidence to declare the word of God in a world hostile to it. And let's make sure we're clear. Peter and John weren't some special characters. They were regular, everyday guys. Peter was a fisherman. He was the guy who denied Jesus three times. He was a coward before the crucifixion happened. But what happened? What turned this guy who was a weakling, who was rejecting Christ, into this bold, Fierce warrior who could stand up to what was the Jewish high uh, Supreme Court of the day and say, I'm going to preach Christ. What happened? Two things, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Pentecost. So if you're a preacher, if you're an evangelist, if you're preaching the truth of God's word meeting resistance... If you're, being, if you're being beaten up and you look around the world around you and you realize you're the only one standing, this is exactly how it's supposed to happen. And the two things that are going to give you boldness, they're going to give you courage, they're going to give you the swagger you need to stand up for God is the resurrection and Pentecost. Because the resurrection is the receipt you hold in your left hand. That tells you the worst the world could do to God failed. That Jesus Christ is written. That he is the one that validates everything that you're doing is not in vain. Because the bodily resurrection of Jesus is exactly what you're longing for, striving for. And you're yearning and working for everyone who hasn't yet heard that word. So, they can taste of that heavenly promise as well. So, in the left hand, you have the bloodstained receipt of the resurrection. And in the right hand, you have the historical vent of the fact that Pentecost happened. That when Jesus said, I will never leave you nor never forsake you, he sent his spirit down to assist you. Yes. So when it's dark when it's bleak when you feel alone when you feel like the entire world around you is trying to take you out the spirit is right there with you and when god says i will never leave you and never forsake you you can be sure based on the resurrection of jesus that he is right there with you and the boldness and the courage and the fearlessness you have to speak the truth of God's word while the heathen rage. You can be assured, you can be confident, because your left hand holds the resurrection and your right hand holds Pentecost. Now, saints, I'm going to close by praying for the workers of God, for praying for the elect, for praying for all those who are not in a situation as advantageous as us where we can freely come together on a Sunday and worship our Lord and our Savior. But I want to close with a prayer for all of those in areas of the world that are in the midst of heathen raging, that are in the midst of hostile environments. So please, church, let us pray. O Lord, our Father, and our God, we thank you for your word, which you have given us today in your church, at your pulpit, amongst your people. We, O Lord, labor, and we strive, Almighty God, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of your glory, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to equip all of your workers, to equip all of your tireless servants who stand for the truth of the word of God in environments that are hostile to it. We pray for all of those who are threatened with physical violence, with psychological violence, with political violence, with legal violence, with emotional violence, who are uh, the victims of spiritual warfare, Almighty God, because they know the truth. And in a world consumed with darkness, the light is what people are hostile Lord, we pray for your servants. Holy Spirit, we pray and ask you to incline your ear to hear your people, to quicken them, to strengthen them, and give them the endurance. Give them the hupomene. Give them the character that they need to walk down the Via Dolorosa, not for their sakes, but for the honor and glory of God Almighty. Lord, give them the strength. Give them the courage. Give them the faith. Give them the fearlessness. Give them the holy boldness that the Holy Spirit imparted to your people in Acts 4, that they shall rest upon the rock that is Christ the King, and they shall find peace, they shall find security into the Holy Spirit that works in them and through them to preach the Word of God, to teach the Bible, to preach Christ, and to make disciples, to go out into the world, and to baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, you promised and told us That we are never alone. We don't have our faith resting the sufficiency of things that are seen. But we rest, almighty God, in that which is unseen, in the unshaken promise. That you shall always be with us. We thank you, God almighty, for life. And we thank you, God almighty, for your grace. For your loving kindness is what makes everything possible. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. God's people say amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this sermon by Dr. Sadafoe. For more valuable content and resources, please visit WCSK.org.